This is a uh, long story. I'm going to try to keep it short, but one version of it goes like this. In 1878, uh, yes, the children can be dismissed to primary church. Thank you, Michael. Uh, in 1878, Floyd Hatfield had a pig. Uh, somehow this pig got a little bit of its ear either bitten off or otherwise clipped, or so Hatfield claimed. On the other side of the Tug Fork River lived a family named the McCoys. You've heard of this family feud, right? The McCoys notched their pig's ears to be able to identify them in case they were stolen. And so when Randolph McCoy saw the notched hog in the Hatfield pen, he accused Floyd Hatfield of swine rustling. It soon escalated into a bitter lawsuit. Randolph McCoy took Floyd Hatfield to court over the issue of this pig. The problem was complicated because the local justice of the peace was Anderson Hatfield. He found no evidence that Floyd had stolen the pig. And based on the testimony of Bill Staten, he ruled in favor of the Hatfields. The case was closed, right? Not quite. Bill Staten was later killed, supposedly in self-defense, by two McCoy brothers. Around that time, Rosanna McCoy was courting Johnson Hatfield, and the McCoys arrested the young man for bootlegging. The Hatfields came in and rescued him by force, and Johnson Hatfield then abandoned the pregnant Rosanna McCoy and married her cousin instead. Later, Rosanna's three brothers killed a Hatfield. The Hatfields then hunted down the McCoys, tied them to pawpaw bushes, and pumped them full of lead. The Hatfields were arrested, but mysteriously got away with no punishment whatsoever. They used their political connections, uh, the McCoys used their political connections to reinstate the charges, and in retaliation, the Hatfields burnt down a McCoy cabin. Two McCoy children were killed that night, eight Hatfields were arrested, and to cut a long story short, that Hatfield-McCoy feud raged for years, claiming a dozen lives from both families. Eventually, the governors of both Kentucky and West Virginia intervened, and even the U.S. Supreme Court got involved. Like I said, it's a long story. It's a depressing story. And no, I have no idea what happened to the pig that started the whole thing, okay? <laughs> but what I do know is that when family feuds turn violent, the end is seldom, if ever, initiated by the feuding families themselves. Somebody else must step in. This morning, we begin our study of Obadiah, and I probably should begin by saying, open your Bibles to the table of context. Uh, and find where Obadiah is located, right? It's right between Amos and Jonah. That helps a lot, doesn't it? Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, according to some, it's also the least read book in the Old Testament and the least preached book of the Old Testament. In other words, of the minor prophets, the most minor is Obadiah. And minor does not refer to importance, no. It refers to length. And Obadiah is one chapter with 21 verses. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 11 to consider the kindness and sternness of God, and the minor prophets are a great place to do that. And although the Old Testament mentions at least a dozen individuals called Obadiah, none can be identified for sure with this prophet who wrote this. There's also uncertainty about when it was written. I mean, it refers to the sin of Edom at the time of the sacking of Jerusalem, and that could have happened as early as 850 B.C. or as late as 312 B.C. Personally, I think it was 586, but we'll get into that later. 
Uh, the book is minor also in terms of most people's knowledge about it, right? If I were to ask you this morning, what is Obadiah about, how many of you would have a great answer? Yeah, me either. But it has a major message for us and every other age as well. Why? Because it is God's word to us, and what do we know about God's word? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for every one of us. So Obadiah is the result of a family feud. These two families were not unrelated, but they were families fathered by two brothers, which became two neighboring nations. So in a sense, this is a story of sibling rivalry. Uh, None of us have ever experienced that, right, with our kids or our own siblings? Of course not. No, we're all perfect. No. And Obadiah is a pronouncement of doom against the ancient and long-forgotten nation of Edom. So what I'd like to do this morning is read it in its entirety, and then we're going to look at the background behind this book. So hopefully by now you found Obadiah, and it reads like this, The Vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasure searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, You, too, were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster, and do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives, And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions." Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, 
And those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possessed the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who among the Canaanites, as far as Zarephath, are the, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sephard, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is profitable to study all of your word. And Father, as we begin to look at the book of Obadiah this morning, we ask that you would uh, show us what you want us to see. Father, that we would uh, see that the, the pride of Edom brought them down. And Father, each one of us struggles with pride in our own life as well. And so we ask that you would uh, allow us to see that, that we might repent of it. Uh, Father, humble us before you, and we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. So after reading Obadiah, you know exactly what it's all talking about, right? Well, hopefully we'll get there, but uh, Obadiah simply means servant of the Lord. Other than that, we know nothing about the author of this book. So who are the Edomites? Well, did you notice he calls them people of Edom and the people of Esau? There's a reason for that. They trace their origin to Esau, the firstborn twin of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau means hairy, and if you read the account, he was born hairy. He's also called Edom, meaning red, because he sold his birthright for what? For some red stuff, Genesis 25 says. It says, Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. You know, sometimes I cook stuff that looks like stuff, but I, I'm guessing this was a stew of some kind. But Esau disregarded God's promise by marrying two Canaanite women and later a daughter, a descendant of Ishmael. He ended up settling in a region of mostly rugged mountains south of the Dead Sea called Edom or the land of Seir. This land was a wilderness area, narrow valleys, rugged mountains. Uh, today it's best known Petra is in the land of Edom. And so if you've seen pictures or been there, you know what the countryside is like. Edom's towns were perched in the high places, providing a great defensive ground against attack. And the Bible's not clear when the Edomites came to possess that land that they inhabited. In Genesis 14, a small nation known as the Horites possessed that portion of land. They were one of the five nations that attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and kidnapped Lot. However, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 32, Edom is in possession of this land. And from history, we know that Edom possessed wealth partly due to copper mining, but mostly from being situated on the King's Highway, running from Alat at the northern tip of the Red Sea, running along the eastern plateau to Damascus and northward. It was an important caravan route, linking North Africa with Europe and Asia. They controlled about 70 miles of this road, and they exacted tolls from whoever passed through and got their wealth there. Believe it or not, Edom was also known for its wisdom. You knew that, right? Where was Eliphaz from? Who's Eliphaz? Well, one of Job's friends, right? He came from a city of, e of southern Edom. Uh, Edom's position on the king's highway allowed them to absorb knowledge from the many cultures that passed through. So, who are these people called Edomites? The brothers of the Israelites, descendants of Esau, Jacob's older brother. And it's important we get this background. It's important we understand this because if we don't understand this, we're not going to understand the book of Obadiah. 
So, so the struggle between Esau and Jacob is important, and it forms the background to the judgment that God gives Edom here in Obadiah. So with that being said, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 25, and you may want to keep your finger in Obadiah so you don't have to try to find it again. But in Genesis 25, we read about the birth of Jacob and Esau, a familiar story, but in verses 21 through 26, we read this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger." When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother uh, came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Here's the history behind Obadiah. Even when they were in the womb, these two brothers were struggling. Rebecca uh, thought a war had broken out within her, and she prays and asks God, God, what's going on here? And what did God tell her? There are two nations in your womb. The older will serve the younger. And you know the story of Esau and Jacob. Throughout their lifetime, they bickered, they struggled, they strove against one another. And this antagonism carried on through their descendants, where Esau's offspring held Jacob's offspring in perpetual contempt and hatred. In fulfillment of Isaac's prophecy in Genesis 27, where he tells Esau, by your sword you shall live, the Edomites were frequently at odds and at war with Israel. And not without reason. I mean, Jacob was not the nicest guy in the world, was he? No. His name means supplanter or grasper. And throughout the book of Genesis, he's grasping at everything he can get, beginning with Esau's heel, even as they were born. He tries to get by on his wit, his cunning, his schemings, and he relied on that and not on the promises of God. And throughout their lifetime, Esau and Jacob struggled against each other. You remember the story, Esau came in from hunting and he was very hungry. There's Jacob with his bowl of red stuff and Esau sells Jacob his birthright for it. Is that all Jacob ever did to his brother? No. Jacob also duped his own father, Isaac, out of Esau's blessing, disguised himself, you know the story, as his brother, asked his father for the blessing of the firstborn son. And what was the result of that? Well, in Genesis 27, verse 41, it says, Esau bore a grudge against Jacob, and then Esau says this, I will kill my brother Jacob. Sounds like the Hatfields and McCoys, doesn't it? These two were rivals throughout their life. One son was daddy's favorite, the other was mama's boy. And when Esau said that, Jacob fled for his life. He went to the land of Haran, the, uh, his, where his mother's relatives were. He remained working there for his uncle Laban. You remember that story? Eventually, years later, he returns to Canaan with his wives, with his children, with his possessions. And Esau's waiting for him with 400 men. Jacob was scared for good reason. And he split everyone up, and he spent the night wrestling with God there in Genesis chapter 32. The next day, Jacob thought Esau would kill him, 
But the two were kind to one another, and miraculously, it wasn't blood that flowed, but tears as the two embraced. At first, both Esau and Jacob settled there in the land of Canaan. Their families grew into nations and prospered so much that the Bible says the land could not sustain them. So Esau moved to the hill country of Seir, leaving Jacob in Canaan. And so even though the twins had graciously reconciled, the two nations carried on that struggle that began in Rebekah's womb. And as I said, you know, Jacob was not without blame, I mean, without pity. He, he bought his brother's birthright for a bargain, a bowl of soup. I mean, who would do that to their brother? He deceived his father into blessing him over his brother Esau. Esau hated Jacob. He wanted to kill him. And yet God used all of these things in Jacob's life to bring him to the end of himself. He used these tribulations to work a faith in Jacob, in the one true God. And that was the foundation as God began to work his redemptive plans through Jacob's family as the nation of Israel descended from him. Esau, uh, Esau, on the other hand, was no saint either. I mean, how does the writer of Hebrews describe him? As profane and godless. Because he was willing to sell his birthright for a single meal. As I said, Esau married pagan, pagan wives, which scripture spoke against. And, and their animosity continued through generations. As we come to the time when Israel left the land of Egypt after centuries of slavery there, when Moses and the Israelites asked permission to pass through the land of Edom on their journey to the promised land, the king of Edom said no, and he backed it up with a military back, uh, barricade. The Jews had to go around Edom. He would not let them through. So though God clearly worked in Jacob's life and God brought him to a real faith, Jacob shared much of the guilt in this troubled relationship with Esau. But that does not excuse how Esau's descendants, the Edomites, would treat Israel throughout history. In fact, as you go down through history, after Jacob and Esau until the time of Amos, there's an ongoing record of conflict between these two nations. For example, King Saul battles them in 1 Samuel 14. David does so in 2 Samuel 8. Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Amaziah, Uzziah, all have conflicts with Edom. Eventually, Edom would be controlled by Assyria and then Babylon. And in the 4th century BC, the Edomites were forced to leave their land, and they moved into the area of southern Palestine and were defeated there by Judas Maccabeus, his nephew, forced them to accept Judaism as their religion. But the record between these two nations fulfills the blessings that Isaac had given both of his sons. When Isaac blessed Jacob, he included a blessing that Jacob would be master over his brother. But when he blessed Esau, he said this, By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. It shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. You know, you read that, and that's kind of a mixed blessing, isn't it? And yet God proved faithful to Esau's descendants in that he gave them a land, and he destroyed the enemies of theirs who lived there. And God's protection of the Edomites is seen also in his refusal to let the Israelites occupy their territory. God said in Deuteronomy 2, you are not to take their land. And so these blessings characterize the relationships of their descendants. It describes the national relationship between Israel and Edom. And you know, when we get to the book of Malachi, God himself tells us that what? He loved Jacob and hated who? Esau. 
What does God mean when he says he hated Esau? No, we're not getting into that this morning. Uh, go on the church webpage, find the sermon from Romans 9.13, and we went into it in depth there. But, but the mystery, the unfathomable thing, isn't that God hated Esau. The thing that is unimaginable is that he loved Jacob. I mean, God has a right to do whatever he wants, to hate who he wants, to love who he wants. But the fact is, we're all sinners. We've all rebelled against him. And his wrath abides upon us unless we repent and turn to him through Jesus Christ. The, the, the mystery of the gospel, the thing we can't understand, is that the God of Jacob is our refuge. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 46. The God of Jacob, not Esau. It's not the God of Esau. It's not the God of the strong. It's not the God of the wise, the God of the good, or the God of the moral. No. It's the God of Jacob, and he is our refuge. One more clarification. Though these blessings of Isaac were prophetic of how things would work out, it didn't mean the Israelites were supposed to treat the Edomites badly. No. Listen to what God told the Israelites as they were about to come into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 2, God told them, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their land even as little as a footstool, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. And then later on in Deuteronomy, chapter 23, God tells Israel, you shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And as Israel takes possession of the land that God had promised them, God begins by reminding them of their brotherhood with the Edomites. That was supposed to count for something. And no, Israel did not do this perfectly. But I want us to see, this is what God says was supposed to be their attitude. They were to see Edomites as brothers and treat them well because of it. As I mentioned, jumping 400 years after the return to the Promised Land... David conquered the Edomites in a great battle recorded in 2 Samuel 8. From that time on, through the reign of Solomon, the Edomites were subject to the descendants of Jacob. One writer puts it this way, Until this time, Edom must have been thought of as Israel's older brother in being stronger, older, and more developed. By this battle, when David defeats them, the elder was supplanted by the younger in clear historical analogy to the Jacob-Esau parallel in Genesis. From this point on, one can trace the bitter, bitter rivalry which is documented in the prophecy of Obadiah. This rivalry continued throughout the monarchy and the divided kingdoms. Bitterness, hatred raged between these two countries. The smoldering animosity between the Israelites and the Edomites blossomed into a blaze when Edom aided Jerusalem's enemy, the great and powerful Babylon by standing by as a spectator when Babylon sacked Jerusalem. In 586 BC, Edom even encouraged Babylon to destroy Jerusalem. They even took part in the pillaging and the killing of Israelites. In Psalm 137, we read, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, to its very foundation. So I want you to try to picture this for a minute. There's a Babylonian army surrounding Jerusalem. Soldiers are gathered around its walls. They breach the walls. They storm into the city. Fires are burning. They're slaying men, women, and children. The city is burning as they pillage it. 
But we also see around the city a group of people that are not being harmed, that were not Babylonians. We see the people of Edom. As their neighbors, the Israelites are being slaughtered. As the cry of the Jewish children comes up out of the rubble, this nation, this people, these citizens of Edom are standing around watching as it all goes down. And they're doing more than just passively watching. They're actually taunting the Jews as it happens. They're encouraging the Babylonians to burn and destroy the city. Ezekiel tells us Edom had an everlasting enmity against Israel, and they used every opportunity to display that hatred. So Edom stood as spectators, doing nothing while Babylon attacked Israel. And to add insult to injury, the Edomites plunder Jerusalem after the battle. Uh, they, they capture fleeing Israelites and turn them over to the Babylonians. So the Edomites, brother nation of the Jews, is bringing destruction and pain upon their brothers. While God did give a blessing to Esau and his descendants, Jacob was the child of promise through whom salvation would come. The promise given to Abraham would be fulfilled through Israel, not through Edom. And obviously, that would cause competition and strife between these countries. So when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, Edom rejoiced. Not only were they thrilled at Israel's destruction, they joined in the violence and helped plunder Jerusalem as well. And the book of Obadiah is an announcement of God's judgment against them. So turn back to Obadiah, if you would. What did this nation of Edom do to arouse God's wrath? Why did God hate them? Well, in a nutshell, because they were proud, arrogant, and self-sufficient. They looked down on and hated their brothers, the chosen people of God. And this little book of Obadiah deals with the oldest sin on the face of the earth. It deals with the sin of pride. You know, in our day and age, we minimize pride. Uh, you know, we all have our list of the top worst sins, right? And none of our lists match up. But the truth is the foundational sin of all sin is that of pride. It's behind every other sin. It wasn't it pride that turned an angel into the devil? Uh, pride is the sin that depopulated the realms of heaven and emptied the Garden of Eden. Pride is the sin that brought Jesus to the cross and had him bleed and die for our forgiveness. Pride is the sin that keeps sinners far from the salvation of God. And so Obadiah comes as God's messenger with God's message. And the first thing he says is that God has judgment for Edom. Why? Because they were proud. Verse 3, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? You know, this is the only place in Scripture where we find an explanation of why God hated Esau. And it was partially due to their pride. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. God hated their pride so much that he pronounced and carried out complete destruction on the nation of Edom. Edom does not exist today. You know that, right? As a matter of fact, I don't even think you can find an Edom, Edomese, Edomese food. Is that the proper Edomite food? I, and Edom will not come back. Why? Because God carried out his judgment upon them. And by the year 100 AD, they were lost to history, never to be seen again. 
The Edomites were proud for several reasons, and we're going to deal with that later on. But before we get to all that, I hope that each one of us will allow God to search our own hearts for any hints of pride in our own life. You know, I don't think it probably ever happened, but the movie Titanic portrayed it this way. Uh, a lady was aboard the Titanic, and she asked a crewman if the, if the ship really was unsinkable. And he responded, God himself could not sink this ship. That's the kind of spirit that prevailed in Edom. They believed that God himself could not bring them low, and they were deceived by their pride. You know, I'm sure none of us here this morning would consider ourselves to be anti-God. None of us would openly say that we don't need God in our lives, but how often do our decisions and actions and attitudes reflect spirits of pride? I mean, oftentimes we can be proud and prideful of our success thinking we have done it all. Uh, We can be proud of our knowledge or our talents, or our ability, or whatever. You know, it's even possible for believers to be proud that they've been saved by grace, which makes no sense. Salvation is not something to make you proud. No, it's, it isn't even something to brag about. It's something about which to glorify God for. It's something that should humble us. I mean, as James said, what? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? You know, whether you realize it or not, we all struggle and wrestle with pride in our own lives. And it's possible that our pride has even deceived us so that we can't even see it anymore. And if that's the case, we need to repent of our pride and our prideful ways. We need to humble ourselves before God, and he will lift us up. Because if we ignore our pride or continue in it, we may find ourselves suffering a fate similar to Edom's. So while Obadiah is a prophecy of judgment on the Edomites, it was probably never read by them. We have no reason to believe that Obadiah ever made his way to Edom and stood in some public square and preached to the Edomites the way Jonah did to the Ninevites. This is unique in that Obadiah is the only book in the Bible not addressed to God's people or mankind in general. No, it's addressed particularly to an enemy of Israel, but they probably never heard it. It was given to Israel to encourage them that God is still in control. His plan is continuing. And as it closes, it says, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. They needed to remember this at this time that they're being taken into captivity. So the promise of God's retribution on them was given to them to provide comfort and hope as they went into captivity. You know, Obadiah is one piece of, of God playing out the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. To Abraham, he said, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and so, shall be, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Edomites cursed the Israelites. And God punished them for that. They became the object of God's wrath. They'd failed to comprehend the intensity of God's love for his chosen people. And I think the, the, the overall point of Obadiah seems to be that God's oppressed people should take courage because God is still the righteous master of the universe. The wrongs, all the wrongs will be righted through his judgment. And the judge of all the earth shall one day rule with all his people in safety forever. Aren't you looking forward to that day? The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be 
the Lord's. The kingdom shall at last be the Lord's. So we must make sure that we are the Lord's as well. Who is the Lord? Well, he's got the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Jesus himself. And as Paul tells us, everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord shall be saved. I mean, our God wants us to be secure in him, not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, no. He alone is our fortress, our rock, our shield, our provider. And how can we be proud when we realize that every blessing we have comes from his gracious hand? So with all that being said, I'm going to show you another video, an overview of the book of Obadiah. So let's watch that, then we'll come back and look at a couple other Edomites that you might have heard of. Old Testament. It's a mere 21 verses. And at first glance, it does not look very promising. It's a series of divine judgment poems against the ancient people of Edom, which was a nation that neighbored Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. However, there is way, way more going on here. So first, here's the backstory. The people of Edom were unique because they had a shared ancestry with the Israelites. They both belonged to the family of Abraham, who with Sarah had their son Isaac, who with his wife Rebecca had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now the book of Genesis told us the story of these two brothers, and to say the very least, they had a tense relationship. They each later received the names Israel and Edom, which eventually became the name of the families that descended from them. And these families replayed the same difficult relationship of their ancestors. Israel and Edom had enormous tensions throughout the centuries, but they still shared that family bond. And it's that bond that was betrayed and shattered in the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon. So when Israel was invaded and conquered by Babylon, the people of Edom took advantage by plundering other Israelites cities, and then capturing and even killing Israelite refugees. Now, in other prophetic books, God held Israel's neighbors accountable for this kind of violence. And so here, Obadiah does the same for Edom. The short book has two halves. The first part is a series of accusations against the leaders of Edom, specifically for their pride and self-exaltation, literally as they lived up high in the desert rocks, but also metaphorically, they truly believed they were superior to the Israelites. And it's that pride that led the Edomites to not just stand idly by when Babylon came to destroy Jerusalem, but actually to participate in the destruction. And so God says through Obadiah that Edom will be brought down from their height and destroyed. As they have done to Israel, so it will be done to them. Now, right when you think you're going to hear more about how Edom will meet its doom, the topic suddenly shifts in verse 15. We hear this, the day of the Lord is near against all nations. Now, why do we all of a sudden shift from Edom now to all nations? This verse is a hinge piece, and it links the first half of the book to the second half, where Obadiah announces the day of the Lord, but not only for Edom. He widens his focus to include all nations. And Obadiah says that all prideful nations that act like Edom will face God's justice in the same way. They'll fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Now, the combination of these two sections, one about Edom, the other about all nations, shows us why Obadiah was so interested in this tiny southern neighbor of Israel. Obadiah sees Edom's pride and fall as an example, an image of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring about their fall too. It's hardly coincidental that in Hebrew, the word Edom or Edom is spelled with the exact same letters as the word humanity or in Hebrew, Adam. In Obadiah, 
Edom's rise and fall is a parable of how God's justice will one day oppose pride and violence among all nations in the day of the Lord. But as in all the prophets, God's judgment is never his final word. Specifically, remember the conclusion of the two books that came right before Obadiah, Joel and Amos. Joel had painted a picture of what will happen after the day of the Lord against all nations. He said that God would perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who humbled themselves and called upon him would be delivered. And in the conclusion of Amos, he said that after the day of the Lord has judged Israel's evil, God would raise up the house of David and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom and all the nations called by my name. And so the book of Obadiah has been placed right after Joel and then Amos to expand on these very promises about the hope of God's kingdom over all of the nations. And so the book concludes with a very hopeful future. God says he's going to restore his kingdom over the new Jerusalem, that he'll repopulate it with a faithful remnant. And then from there, God's kingdom will expand to include all the territory and nations around Israel. And so this little book contributes to the larger portrait of God's justice and faithfulness that we're seeing in the prophets. The ancient pride and betrayal of the people of Edom becomes an example of the greater human condition, all of the ways that we betray and hurt each other and God's good world. But there's hope, Obadiah says. Edom's downfall points to the day when God will deal with evil in our world, but also bring his healing kingdom of peace over all the nations. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. As I said, there are a few more Edomites we have to acknowledge. When Greek became the common language of the area, the Edomites became known by another name, the Idumeans. Sound familiar? As Rome became the prominent power, and Idumean was named king of Judea. He's known to us as King Herod the Great, an Edomite. He and his family were the last notable people from Edom. It was the Edomite Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus by slaughtering the baby boys in Bethlehem. It was Herod Antipas who murdered John the Baptist. It was Herod Agrippa who killed James, the half-brother of Jesus, and tried to kill Peter. All of them were Edomites. And Satan used them to persecute God's chosen people, the descendants of Jacob. And so as we think of this judgment oracle against Edom, we have to remember again Jesus Christ. Uh, remember how he referred to his disciples as brothers. In Mark 3, he pointed to those sitting there under his teaching, and he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. And yet, as we examine our own lives, we know that we haven't treated this brother of ours, this older brother, King Jesus, the way we should. In fact, none of us have done the will of God perfectly. And Jesus, in some ways, is essentially that older brother who was offended and betrayed by us, his younger siblings. As John's gospel says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet, Jesus knew that would be the case, but he came anyway. He came not in anger and wrath, but in great grace and mercy. He came in order to turn away the wrath of God for our sin. He came and accomplished this through the cross, his death and his resurrection. And in Jesus, mercy has triumphed over judgment. So then all of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, 
We're the younger brothers. We're the younger sisters of Jesus Christ himself. We're joint heirs with him. We've been adopted into God's family. And we must praise our elder brother, the firstborn from the dead, among many brothers. And one way we do that is through the communion table. Let's pray, and then the men will come and we'll celebrate communion. Father, we do come before you, thanking you for your word and the things that you teach us in it. Father, we do pray that we would be humble before you, knowing that salvation is from you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who in your sovereignty and wisdom sent Jesus Christ, your own son, to take on human flesh and to live a sinless life and to die in our place for us. And Father, as we think of that sacrifice once again this morning, Father, we pray that you might be worshiped, adored, and praised by each and every one of us as we remember the death of Jesus Christ. Help us in these things, we pray in your name. Amen.